This is an APTA podcast. Welcome to PTJ Author Interviews. PTJ Editor-in-Chief Alan Jetty talks with authors about the most interesting and sometimes surprising aspects of their work. And now, Dr. Jetty. I'd like to welcome listeners to this latest PTJ podcast. This is Alan Jetty, Editor-in-Chief of PTJ, and today I'm delighted to welcome as my guest the 2019 Mary McMillan Lecturer, Dr. Thomas McPoyle. Tom, welcome. Thank you, Alan. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Let me give our listeners a little background uh, about you. Dr. McPoyle is Emeritus Professor of Physical Therapy at Regis University in Denver, Colorado. He's also Emeritus Regis Professor of Physical Therapy at Northern Arizona University, and he serves as a consultant to the Physical Therapy Orthopedics Clinic at the Denver Health Medical Center in Denver, Colorado. He's known nationally and internationally for his contributions that have systematically examined foot and ankle function from both a scientific and a clinical perspective. And Dr. McPoyle is the founding president of the Foot and Ankle Special Interest Group of the Academy of Orthopedic Physical Therapy. Tom, I'm delighted to welcome you to this podcast. Well, thank you, Alan. I, I really look forward to uh, having a chance to uh, discuss with you some of the uh, points that I raised in my uh, Macmillan lecture. Let me start by encouraging our listeners to read, if they have uh, the time, your Macmillan lecture, which is being published in PTJ. I, I will say, Tom, it was a great lecture, and I enjoyed the opportunity of reviewing it in preparation for our talk today. And let me start by by referring to the title of your lecture, which was, Is Excellence in the Cards? And ask you, if you would, to explain to our readers briefly why you chose that for your title. You know, I think the, um, the first thing that strikes you when um, you're the recipient of uh, such an incredible honor as the Macmillan Lecture, um, I-, I think you say to yourself, what are you going to say in this lecture? <laughs> and uh, I, I mentioned in my actual lecture that I've been very impressed with um, Dr. James Gordon's 45th Macmillan Lecture, which um, was titled, um, If Greatness is a Goal. And, you know, he had noted in that lecture that he had taken uh, the title directly from Dr. Helen Hislop's 10th Macmillan Lecture. And um, I, I have to say that, that, that one of the great things, uh, one, of, one, of the tr- one of the many great things about being awarded this honor is um, the time to go back and to review and have the opportunity to read uh, many of the past Macmillan lectures. Um, and uh, I know it's difficult for people to have the time to do that, but boy, what, a, what an enlightening experience to see um, uh, what, what all these individuals who have been uh, given the honor of doing this lecture, uh, the different thoughts and insights they have on the, on the profession, and no different from reading Dr. Um, Dr. Hislop's. Um, and as I read her lecture, um, and I really reflected on her, on her dream that she stated, that physical therapy shall achieve greatness, um, the thought kept coming back to me is the need for all physical therapists to be extremely good at what they do. In other words, demonstrate excellence um, if, indeed, our profession is going to achieve greatness. 
Um, I've always tried to stress to the entry-level physical therapy students I've had the privilege of teaching that um, they can only achieve excellence as a clinician if they constantly self-reflect and self-evaluate on their performance, of course, in addition to keeping up with the, the best literature. But I, I think so, – so excellence was always – um, something that I that I thought would be a good topic to go back and, and, and review. But I have to say, too, that um, what really confirmed my decision to entitle my lecture is Excellence in the Cards was after reading Lucy Blair's seventh Macmillan lecture in which she noted that Mary Macmillan repeatedly stated that uh, the success of the physical therapy profession could only be accomplished by excellence in performance. And so I, I decided that yeah, this would be good. I, I, I really did, though, and I tried to, um, in, the, in the time that I had, to really reflect on the, the incredible accomplishments that the physical therapy profession has made, at least in the 45 years that I've had the privilege of, of being in the profession. So I did not want to downplay that, but at the same time, I thought there are definitely some things that I felt personally that we as a profession could move forward with to try to achieve excellence as we move towards that goal of, uh, of greatness. Well, one of the things I really liked about your lecture is that you gave some great clinical examples to kind of put flesh on the bones of what you meant by excellence. Uh, so let's drill down a little bit on, on some of the themes in your lecture. One thing that struck me, Tom, when I reread it was a question that you raised, you made the point that a key question is whether or not a treatment method should be used in the clinic before there's evidence to support the utilization. What's your answer to that question and why? Well, you know, this is a very difficult question to answer as I, I, I believe that the, the phys physical therapists want to help their patients do whatever they can to, to decrease the pain, uh, functional disabilities, um, optimize their, their movement. Um, and we also know that it takes time to conduct the necessary clinical trials to determine if a treatment is really going to be clinically effective. That being said, what I've always tried to stress to my entry-level students and, and to other physical therapists that if we decide to use a treatment method that lacks clinical evidence to support its use, we must ensure that at least the treatment method can be validated with at least basic science research. And, and more importantly, the clinician, I think, must be willing to stop using the method if eventually research is published and the evidence demonstrates that the technique or method should no longer be used. Um, I believe this is probably a really difficult issue for the clinician to contend with when they've used a treatment method that, in their mind, has helped the patient, and the patient has probably given them feedback to say that, yes, it has helped, but the clinical evidence doesn't support its use in comparison to other more established treatment methods. It's interesting, probably about oh, maybe 12 years ago, I was asked to be on a doctoral committee of a former student of mine who was uh, working on his uh, Doctor of Health Sciences, and he really firmly believed that the use of um, 
this specific type of electrical stimulation provided superior or, or gave superior results for his patients with um, plantar fasciitis. And um, so we set up a randomized controlled trial for the study uh, and did the study. And um, the, 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 the interesting thing was what we did was to make sure that both groups received some already accepted, um, validated by clinical evidence uh, treatment, treatment methods. They were included for both groups. The only thing that differed between the two groups was the electrical stimulation. And he was so sure that this method worked. And, I mean, he was having, you know, his patients utilize, uh, I think they were renting these electrical stimulators. And unfortunately, well, not unfortunately, but, but what, the, what the evidence showed from the clinical trial was is that the electrical stimulation made no difference at all. And I think as a clinician, he was very taken back by that. He thought, well, you know, I, I really thought that worked. And I said, well, that's all right. I said, but at the same time now, you have to make a change. I mean, you have to look at, you know, the study that we've done or that you've done and look to see that it doesn't make that difference. And I think that's probably one of the most difficult things to do. And I gave him a lot of credit for, you know, realizing that, you know, this, 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 the path that he had gone down from a treatment perspective probably, um, even though it was helping his patients at the time, was probably not something that, that probably should be continued. And um, so I think that's where we really have to, to, to uh, try to address that. And I know I used to try to talk about that all the time um, in, you know, classes that I had with my entry-level students to help them think about that. Well, you know, it, it brings me to a term that you used in your lecture, which you referred to as collective conservatism which you defined as, as a pattern of practice where the practice has become accepted and continues even in the absence of any scientific basis for it. And I had not heard that phrase before, and I thought it was a great, great term for what you're talking about here. What do you think we as a profession can do to combat collective conservatism? Well, I, you know, I mean, it, it, that is another, I think, another great, a great question because I really do believe that as a profession, what we need to do is to try to provide clinicians with the most up-to-date evidence available and try to put it in a format that's both concise as well as, as, as comprehensive, comprehensive, which is not easy to do. Um, I mean, we know that clinicians put in long hours, with patient management and with documentation. Um, yeah. and, and, and as a result, um, you know, at the end of a long week in the clinic, how, how difficult is it going to be for them to go home and expect the clinician to spend one to two hours to try and read new studies that have been published? And the thing that struck me over the last probably 30 years, and I'm sure with you as well, in your role as editor, is the incredible increase in the quantity of quality scientific journals, not to mention the increase of these online journals, which often are not peer-reviewed, but they make it even more difficult because there's this constant um, flux of, 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 of data coming out, and how do we get the clinician to try to really try to, to not just say, you know, this has worked for me, so I'll just keep doing it. And I think that, to me, is the, is the real challenge. You know, it was interesting, not this past year, but the year before it next, 
they had asked the Catherine Worthingham Fellows to, if they'd be interested in meeting with new graduates as sort of part of a little mentor program. And I, I was more than happy to do it. And I met with a really, uh, I was really so impressed with this young man. He had just graduated from um, a school out in um, in California, and so it was interesting to talk to a student not from one of the, the university that I taught at. And it was interesting because some of the biggest challenges that he faced now being in the clinic on a full-time basis was, one, working with some clinicians who, in his mind, were not following best practice based on the current evidence, but just as importantly, how was he able to keep up with the evidence? He said, it was one thing when I was in school, but now that I'm out working, and he, he said the same thing, you know, after 10 hours, I'm I'm coming home. Um, you know, I, we, they just had had, he and his wife had just had a, a baby, uh, a child. So, I mean, he says, you know, I want to help my wife and devote time to the, the baby. So, I mean, I think these challenges to me are what make it so, so difficult. Now, I think the increase in the number of the clinical practice guidelines have, have really helped. I, I think they do help provide clinicians with current best evidence, and, and I think they are um, – I know they try to do it in a concise and comprehensive manner. I know when when we did the first practice guideline for the orthopedic section in, for chronic plantar heel pain, um, we you know we developed this guideline. We tried to include all the best evidence that was available, um, and and it, and it was interesting because after we published it, we or right when we were getting ready to publish it, what we realized is there is no way the clinician is going to be able to get this information and probably use it. Well, they have the time. And so what we did, uh, and actually there was a, a member of the Orthopedic uh, Academy board that recommended it, we made a one-page, just a one-page concise uh, clinical reference sheet, we called it. And and, and in, in going up to, and in, uh, in presenting uh, these, uh, the clinical practice guidelines at a couple of national APTA meetings, that's what the clinicians came up and said. They enjoyed that the most. That 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 piece of just... You know, give me a, a breakdown on what it is. If I want to know what the literature is to substantiate it, because we did put references in this, we can go back and we can look at those. So I think that, to me, is something that that we can continue to try to do. And I'm also aware that some of the journals, and actually a good colleague of mine has actually done one of these, where they, they select a recognized expert in an area of practice to write what they call a master class paper in which the Latest best evidence is combined with a clinical, with expert clinical practice so that you, you, you develop something in a very clinically, uh, clinically meaningful way for the clinician. And I think that to me is, um, th those kinds of activities I think we can hopefully utilize to try to combat collective conservatism. At least that's my thoughts. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. Uh, and you know, as a journal editor, I appreciate your, your thoughts on this. I want to move to uh, another term that you used in your lecture that as a journal editor we struggle with all the time. It's what you referred to as scholarly oblivion, and that's the lack of awareness of authors to acknowledge past work of scholars in the field. We do see that a lot where people are really ignoring some seminal work in, in an area because it's uh, it's a bit older than the past few years. What do you recommend that editors such as myself and, and our reviewers 
do to perform due diligence in combating scholarly oblivion? Because I agree with you, it's a problem. You know, it is, but I, I you know, it's it is difficult. I mean, being on the um, you know the uh, editorial boards of uh, two journals focused more on the foot and the ankle. Um, it's I I think as much as you try to ensure that you know when a paper comes forward that um, that there's uh, that that there's been due diligence on the part of the authors to ensure that they've acknowledged the past work of scholars, especially in their specific topic area. Um, I, I guess I really do feel that, or I think this responsibility probably falls more on the reviewer. Um, I, I think it helps, of course, if the reviewer is highly experienced in the area of study. Um, but I realize that's often not the case, and it's not feasible because, um, again, I mean, to have reviewers with a um, specifically focused area of research is, I mean, you can have some, especially depending on the journal, but um, to have, you know, a, a reviewer that, and, and have a reviewer available to read the paper, because um, that's the other issue, um, it just, it's probably just not feasible. Um, I know one thing that I've done when I'm reading a paper that I'm, that I'm not totally comfortable with is after I've read the paper, what I'll do as a reviewer is I'll I'll do a quick search using um, you know a, a search engine PubMed or Medline, and I'll just do a quick search using some of the key words that the authors themselves have used, or maybe a couple of words that I want to use, just to do a quick assessment to see if there's any papers that maybe I feel that or I can see that the authors might have at least discussed or wanted to include, and then what I'll do is I'll I'll just make a note in my review. Um, you know, uh, you know, I, I, and especially when the authors will make a statement like, you know, in the past 15 years, and you know, when you see something like that, you have to say, "Gee whiz, you know, is this just yeah. really 15 years, or is it yeah. just that's what their awareness is?" So then, what I tend to do is say, "You know, these papers were published like 20, 25 years ago. Uh, do they not have any relevance to your work?" And then let the reviewer, then let the author respond back to the review, but. I do sort of think that that probably has to fall more on on the reviewer. I think it's difficult, you know, as an editor trying to manage so many of papers that, you know, again, it sort of falls back on the reviewer to try to see at least if they can um, try to try to at least challenge the the authors to um, to ensure that they have, you know, included as, uh, the past past research at least acknowledge past research in that area. Let me mention to our listeners that you gave some great examples in your lecture that they should go back and, and read. Um, you also made a really good point about the need for intra-professional referral on the part of clinicians and that it should be emphasized to a much greater degree during professional education and physical therapy. But you also made the point that um, we can't keep adding more information and material to the curriculum. Yeah. at the expense of time in the clinic. So it's kind of a catch-22, and I, I wonder what, what you thought, because, you know, I find myself writing editorials all the time <laughs> suggesting that we do this and do that, but um, my educational colleagues uh, do push back saying, you know, how do, how do we do more? What, what's your thought on that, Tom? Well, I'll tell you, I, I, I totally I, I do see both sides of the coin on this being an, an academic setting for for thirty some thirty six years and 
But, you know, one of the things that, that I found that I, I tried to do with this, Alan, was, and, and, and part of it gets down to, I think, after a period of time, and I, and I think it comes to everybody differently, but after a period of time, I just sort of said to myself, you know, um, I'm, I, I, you know, you, you start lecturing, and if you have a two-hour lecture block, you look at the students' faces, and after 20 minutes, you go, are they, are they really even awake? <laughs> <laughs> Even though they yeah. look like they're awake, you know, and 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 one of the things I had a colleague of mine, uh, oh gosh, probably about ten years ago, uh, talked to me about, you know, have you thought about flipping the classroom, and um, and in this idea of, um, you know, really not just giving the students a bunch of papers to read, but but really taking the time to synthesize the material, maybe five or six pages, because we all know how incredibly intense. Uh, ac- the, the physical therapy, the academic, well, the entire physical therapy education process is for our students. But, but really putting it in a very concise format, uh, and then, uh, and then what I would have them do, following sort of the, the classic flip classroom format, was to have them read that material. They would come into class. I'd ask if you have any questions on the material. Then I would give them a quiz, and then we would immediately review the quiz because that was a great, great way for me to emphasize certain points that I wanted them to make sure they understood, as well as let them say, well, wait a minute, you know, I thought it was this or this might be the answer, and then we could have a good discussion. But what that did was that freed me up to have the time where we could then do cases. Now, they were paper cases, and I understand that's not having a real patient in front of them, but at least with the paper cases, and this was during the first year of the program, we could get them to start, you know, processing clinically and thinking a little bit about problem solving. And we would specifically, my colleagues and I, would specifically put cases in there that really mandated them probably to refer. And uh, and, and, and in some cases, it was referred to another healthcare practitioner. In other words, um, yeah. is this a patient that you should be even attempting to treat? But also we'd bring up the issue is, you know, this because we, we'd, pick, we'd pick individuals who were highly specialized that probably weren't going to be in the average uh, problem that the average physical therapist might see in their clinic. And so the thought process was, well, would you look to send them on to another physical therapist more specialized in this area? So I think, um, because I, I, I gave up thinking that just to lecture on this, I'm not yeah. sure that that would have the impact. But I really thought if we could at least use some kind of a clinical model to tie that in. So that's the one thing that I did to try to add something to that already packed curriculum. It, it was it was a little more work on my part because, and I, ha- I remember I had colleagues coming up to me and saying, well, how do you take a, a two-hour lecture and put it into, say, you know, 20 minutes of reading? And I said, well, it's really good because, you know, you start to look at what really are my objectives of that session and what do I really want the students to understand from that session? But more importantly, what that did was allow me the opportunity now to create time, in essence, without asking for more. <laughs> I, I like that idea, and I, and I like your idea of the interactive quiz, because I struggle with this in my own teaching. I have a three-hour uh, course uh, oh. lecture block, which is deadly, and it oh uh, starts at 4 o'clock. So it's not not the ideal no. setup, but it's once a week, and that's what I'm stuck with. And um, your your idea of making using quizzes that are interactive to break it up, um, I think, is a really good one. Well, I do find that you know, you, if, if the more you get the, as you know, I mean, the more you can get the students 
involved and actively thinking in that during the process it's just um yeah. and and yeah, you, know, you can you can see it in their faces too i mean they're they're much more with it they're much more you know yeah. process, thinking about what we're discussing and 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 hopefully yeah, yeah get them more aware and, and i think they prepare more for the uh for the class as well yeah when they know you're going to be lecturing they're just going to let it wash over them yes you had what i thought was a fairly surprising recommendation in your lecture, at least to me, you suggested that we consider allowing the beginning of specialization before graduation from entry-level education. Mm-hmm. What, what do you see as the pros and the cons of that? And, and do you see other fields who have done that? Well, I, I mean, I, I just know during my first academic position when I was at the University of Illinois, um, I know that, and of course I realize it's a four-year curriculum for medical school, but I do realize that you know, the medical students graduating, I remember going to one of the first medical school graduations and um, and all the students are walking across the stage with a cord around their neck of a different color. And I said, oh, is that like an honors? And they said, no, no, that's a cord indicating their specialization. So they had initiated a specialization or at least a, um, an exposure to a specialization while they were still in the medical school environment. Um I think if we, you know, if you think about the pros, my thought is allowing an entry-level student the opportunity to focus um, in their preferred area of future clinical practice. I think is is uh, is is important. I mean, it, that's what they're that's what they're motivated in. That's not to say that the other areas that we teach are not important for them, but it allows them the opportunity to one find out if that's really an area that they are interested in. And if if it turns out that way, as I tried to emphasize in in my lecture, I think it's going to definitely better prepare them for a possible residency opportunity. The cons, I mean, there's no doubt based on CAPTI requirements and, of course, what the students are required to be tested on in the uh, on the MPTE, we know that we need to train a generalist. So the student is to be prepared. You know, they have to be prepared to address questions in the areas such as cardiopulmonary, neurorehabilitation, cardiopulmonary, acute care. I I think in some respects, at least the programs I've been affiliated with, the, the, in some respects we're already moving in that direction. I mean, many of the programs will offer electives in the areas of specializations for the students, usually within that last semester they're in the program. And to me, the, the the next step would be to offer students the opportunity to be in an extended clinical rotation after they've had that uh, elective or maybe group yeah. of electives with that clinical extended clinical rotation being more focused in the area of specialization. So I, yeah. I think in some respects there, if the program could be just, you know, restructured, remodeled a little bit, and I realize the problem with clinical um, clinical internship or clinical experiences, clinical education. Um, we don't always have all the clinical experiences at the right time and with the right maybe clinical practice. I realize that's that's definitely an issue for physical therapy education. But at the same time, it's, I think there's there's avenues that could possibly be moved. We could move towards at least considering that. Um, but I'll, I'll be honest with you. I think the other issue, which probably might even be more important, is what content do we need to be really teaching at the entry level? And, and I mean, yeah. even as a generalist, I mean, you know, as I mentioned, you know, teaching 
entry-level students over 35 years. I started out teaching at the baccalaureate level. I went to the master's level, and then we went, then we went to the doctor of physical therapy level. What amazed me is I'm still teaching content, similar content, over the entire time. And yeah. granted, you know, we're not, I mean, I'm still teaching to some degree goniometry and manual muscle testing. And I'm not saying that's not a good thing to teach, but my point is, and granted, we're not dedicating a tremendous number of hours to teaching that content that we did maybe 20 or 30 years ago. But at the same time, it still gets back down to what what really is the essential content that all entry-level students need to know to come into practice. Um, I mean, accreditation guidelines are rather vague. Um, you know, it's, it's, are you doing, are you teaching this? Are you teaching this? And so I think one of the things that I would hope is that we would, could come together. I mean, and, and you know, CAPT, ACAPT, um, could come together and, and really sort of address, okay, these are the things that we think entry-level physical therapists need to know when they graduate. And these are the things that a program can emphasize. If the program has more time, then let them teach some other things if they want. But these are the essential things. And then we can let clinicians know because, you know, it's, it's funny that uh, sometimes clinicians probably not knowing what to expect, they sometimes fall back on these very basic skills. And, you know, with all the information we're trying to give to our students, I think, um, as, you, as we mentioned at the start of this, I mean, there's, there's just um, – so much information that, that, and we talked about in the in the previous question. There's so much information that we need to have give these students at the entry level. So I do hope that that we also look at that issue as well too, because I think that's something that will help. Just I don't want to say streamline, but at least make the process a little bit easier going forward. Well, you know, you mentioned CAPTI in uh, in talking about this last. Uh, issue that, that we discussed, and um, that brings me to my final question. And here I think you were nicely building on Jim Gordon's uh, lecture as well uh, a few years ago, and, and you pointed out some statistics that really bothered me. You mentioned data that I think Bliss et al. published showing that the number of core faculty members in accredited PT entry-level programs with a Ph.D., over the course of 2007, 2008, up until 2016, 2017, has increased by 14%. But then you said at the same time, the number of peer-reviewed publications has decreased by 20%, and professional presentations have increased by 29%. And it really does suggest to me that the whole idea of scholarship is being watered down and I, I wonder, what can we do to address that? Because I, I sense you also see that as a disturbing trend. Well, I, I do, and I, I'm, really, I'm really glad that you asked this question. You know, this was a tough thing for me to add to the – I debated whether I should add this to the lecture because I have a lot of tremendous colleagues that I've had the opportunity to, to work with over the last 36 years. And the one thing that and, – and, and they are – exceptional teachers. But the one thing that's always been a bit of a personal disappointment for me is that I just haven't seen them do a lot of scholarship and, and research that eventually led to publication. And um, I, I, I think, you know, I, I mentioned in my lecture um, that um, 
I, when I when I when I arrived at my first academic appointment, I was very fortunate to have a tremendous mentor um, who actually served as a consultant to PTJ uh, when Dr. Steve Rose, this was the paper I was referring to, uh, was the editor, and uh, Dr. Harry Knight, who um, uh, was actually a statistical consultant. Harry was a wizard at statistics. <laughs> and, yeah, uh, I knew Harry well. I oh, knew Harry okay. through Jules Rothstein. Ah, and, and Jules and Harry had worked on that uh, that whole, that, that uh, special white paper on, on measurement and reliability. Exactly. And, exactly. Um, yeah, and, and I, I remember... And Harry was the one that gave me the paper, and he said, "You know, you read the, you need to read this." And um, and I, and I mean, one of the quotes from Dr. Rose's paper that I gave in my lecture, which I think is so important, is this this, this his thought process says, you know, that academics freely engage in research and publication, and teachers do not. And um, I remember when I first started at the University of Illinois, I hadn't started working on my PhD yet, and I remember. Um, you know, one day telling Harry, you know, I, I really have to be, I, I really want to be a great teacher, and I really want to do well, and I want the students, you know, to really enjoy my lectures and get a lot out of it. And I remember, you know, Harry said, he looked at me one day, and I, I he said to me, Tom, he said, you know, it's great, you want to be a good teacher, you, you want to be the best you can be in the classroom, that's important, but he said, just remember one thing, he said, there are great teachers at community colleges. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I, um, I, I took that to. Um, I really took that to heart. And then, of course, as I read Dr. Rose's paper, I took that to heart. So I remember when I, when I finished my PhD, I knew I, I never anticipated probably being in a in a research one environment. I, and I did want the opportunity to be able to teach, and I enjoyed that. But I, I also said to myself that I, I have to have a, a, a personal research agenda. And uh, as a matter of fact, at one of the programs I was at, I, I fought intensely to not have a student research program because I really felt that student research was actually detracting from the ability of the faculty to do to establish their own research agenda. And I know Dr. Rothstein had written a, a very nice editorial on that for a PTJ. Oh, he was passionate, yeah. passionate on that issue. But you know, Tom, unfortunately, there's still programs in our field that do that. Oh, and you know the the thing that's interesting to you know that the the last year that I was at Regis, I served as the uh, dean of the College for Health Professions, and so I was I basically was involved with interviewing all new faculty, and we we were in the process of hiring a physical ther- physical a physical therapy assistant professor position, and I remember. So many of the, um, the, the, and a lot of these were clinicians that were coming in. I mean, they were interested in working on their doctorate degree. But, again, this idea of they were so focused on being an excellent teacher. And the thing that I would say to them is I said, but, you know, you need to have a personal agenda for research. And and I don't think what sometimes they realize is you, unless you publish and, and do research, you're, you're the acceptance that you're going to get in the wider academic community is going to be diminished. I mean, and so I think, you know, we have to realize that, you know, we're part of an academic community, not not just physical therapy, and, and, and part of academics, and I think that's where doc, that's why I was so impressed with Dr. Rose's paper, is part of being an academic is to be involved in the, 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 the scientific uh, endeavor. And so... I, I do hope, I, and you're right. I I, I so enjoyed uh, Dr. Gordon's um, 
um, uh, lecture, and especially when he started talking about this area. Um, and he mentioned it just like I did, that several years ago, Capti had actually put in he some did. fairly significant stipulations. And I know you remember that. And it was sort of watered down because I know a lot of programs complain, but that's why in my lecture what I hoped for is that CAPT and ACAPT would come forward and maybe relook at this issue because I agree with you. I think it's um, it's alarming, and and I said even being in a um, even being in a, a, in a teaching focused institution, um, you still have the responsibility to have to do. Uh, scholarship and to publish in your area of expertise, and um, I hope that's something that um, that will be really relooked at. So I really, I really appreciate you bringing this up. <laughs> well, I, I was really pleased to see you have it in your lecture because I think we need to keep hammering on this issue if we're going to affect change. And so let me just say, Tom, in closing, that I really have enjoyed the opportunity to talk to you about some of the themes. In your lecture, I strongly recommend our listeners take the time to, to read it and to reflect on it. I thought it was just an outstanding lecture, and I, I thank you for both doing that and for taking the time to, today to discuss it with me. Well, I, I thank you for one front for your kind comments and also for uh, for this opportunity. I mean, I think these um, having had the chance to listen to several of these podcasts, I mean, I think I think this is a another a great way to um, help the our profession and our clinicians to um, to get a, a nice brief overview of a lot of different topic areas. So again, I I, I commend you for um, for doing that, and again, I thank you for the opportunity to be able to discuss my lecture today. Appreciate it. This is an APTA podcast.